So last week I shared with you a story about how I almost drowned in the St. Croix River with my dad uh, as an adult. It wasn't the first time or the only time that I nearly drowned, actually. So as a child, I almost drowned when I was with my mom. And it was, we were visiting a friend at their apartments and we were swimming in their pool. And I, I think I was maybe five years old at the time. Uh, and I wasn't a very good swimmer. And by not a very good swimmer, I mean I didn't know how to swim at all. And so what I was doing was I was in the shallow section with my hands on the, the ledge of the pool and just kind of like scooting around like this, right? That was what I did. And I'd get back over to the steps and I'd stand on the steps for a bit and then I'd get a little more courageous and I'd venture out a little bit. But really like I didn't go far enough to where I could have not just stood up uh, until I started getting a little more courageous when, when my mom also started getting into a good conversation with her friend uh, and was very distracted. And there were no other adults in the pool. It was, it was her friend's kids and me and my siblings. And the two of them were deep in conversation. And I started inching out a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. And then suddenly my hand slipped and I fell off of the, my, my grip had lost from the edge of the pool. And I fell underneath the pool. It was the first time I think I had gone actually fully under. And I, and I came back up and I started to yell for help but as soon as I would open up my mouth, I'd go back under and I just gulped a big swallow of pool water, right? And I kept doing this over and over. It kept repeating. I was just drinking so much pool water trying to yell for help and nobody could see me or hear me. And I was splashing around and I was panicking and I would get just my hands, my fingertips on the ledge of the pool and just feel like I could grab it and it'd slip. I couldn't quite get a grip on it. And then I felt like I was getting pushed further and further into the middle of the pool, at least in my five-year-old brain. It felt so far away now from the edge of the pool. And then I, was just, I just started praying. Like I just suddenly just like stopped fighting. It was just like, God, please help me. You know, and I don't remember the words I said as a five-year-old, but I, I just started praying. Like, God, you're gonna have to save me here. And the next thing I knew, it was almost like my body just kind of like floated up to the edge and like got pushed up a little bit and my arms were on the ledge. And I still couldn't like yell anything. I was like choking, you know, just so much water in there. But I, I scooted back over toward the steps and I got my footing on the steps and I ran out of that pool as far away as I could. And I was like, well, I almost drowned. And she's like, oh, you're fine. I was right here the whole time. <laughs> and so no one even believed me. <laughs> It was the most dramatic experience of my life. I still remember it as a 35-year-old man. It still haunts me every time I look at a pool. But, but I tell this story because it was a moment of, of despair. It was a moment of fear. It was a moment of danger where potentially I could have lost my life. Right? And it felt like I had, there was nothing I could do. I was just being swallowed up by this water. And yet, I feel like I strongly believe the Lord was there present with me and brought me up out of that danger. And there's many moments, I'm sure many of us could share, similar to that, right? Not necessarily pool drownings, maybe, but other circumstances where it's like, the Lord had to step in there. The Lord had to be involved. Your story of Jenna, right? And what we do at times is we tend to explain that away and we, we tend to find natural 
seeming circumstances. We, we, we find reason and logic of how that could have happened. Like, yeah, you flow in water. Of course, you, you know. Like, we find ways to around the miraculous intervention of a rescuing God. Right? And what we're going to hear today is a story that it, you can't explain that away. Because everybody saw it. Everybody saw someone else step in and intervene. And what I want us to hear this morning, what I want us to do is put our, our rationalistic brains aside for a second and stop trying to explain everything away with reason and just look at the God who comes and rescues and that he still does that today. And then we're going to hear another story from one of our family members of a more modern Example of how that happened, of how the Lord stepped in when no one else could and miraculously rescued. Sound good? So Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's pause there for a second. Do you remember what last week, chapter 2, was about? Go ahead and say, what, what, what was the main thing going on? Yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, right? What was his dream about? big statue, right? And the top of it was gold, which Daniel told him represents you and your kingdom, right? And so he has this dream of this giant statue and this golden image representing his kingdom. And in that dream, if you remember, 
that the rest of that statue represented all the other kingdoms that would follow him. And there was this stone that came and knocked down the statue and caused it all to crumble and just get swept away with the wind. Nebuchadnezzar is told the interpretation of this dream that God's kingdom will last forever and this statue he sees representing his own kingdom will have to fall. And you turn the page and what is Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's literally building that statue, right? He's literally putting it up. Now listen, we, we turned a page. We don't know. We were told chapter 2 in the second year of his reign. This actually doesn't give us a timeline. So we don't know how long it's been. Is it possible many years have gone by and Nebuchadnezzar forgets about the dream? And he forgets about Daniel's interpretation. Or maybe he starts rationalistically explaining some of that away, Right? Or maybe it was the next day. We don't know. But here's the thing. We're going to all want to this morning hear this story and picture ourselves as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're all going to put ourselves in their shoes and go, yeah, I think I would do that. Or if maybe we're being honest with ourselves, like, uh, would we really do that? Would we really be faithful in the midst of, of trouble, Right? But hardly any of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, would compare ourselves with King Nebuchadnezzar in this story. And yet, how often do we do the same thing? You're not building statues, probably. But how often do each of us go, yes, we, we have heard, we have seen the goodness of God. We know that God is good. I don't have to look anywhere else for satisfaction. Jesus is better and then we turn back to that sin that we said we would never do again. Maybe a month later, maybe a week, maybe the next day, right? That idolatry in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart exists in our own hearts too, if we're really honest with ourselves. And what we see in this is this huge, brash example of it in the king, but we also see the amazing patience of God, the true king, in winning over King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And I hope that we see that for ourselves as well, that we need that same patient God with us because we are just as fickle and we will see how good and amazing God is and we'll quickly turn aside to something else. Right? Proverbs calls that like a dog going back to lick up its own vomit. That's how ridiculous it is. That's how ridiculous it is that he's erecting a statue in the very next chapter. And yet, that's how ridiculous we can be in our own hearts at times too. And so don't miss that. Don't skip over that. Don't just look at, man, what an idiot this king is, right? So he does this and he builds it. It says 60 cubits high, six cubits wide. And it, whenever you hear cubits, just like, Multiply it by one and a half for feet, okay? Because a cubit was about 18 inches. And so it's 90 feet tall. This is a big ordeal and nine feet wide. So this is like, he, he put some money and some effort into this thing. It's a big deal. And we don't know for certain whether this statue is a, a depiction of himself or of a God that he worships, um, Either way, many historians and theologians believe that even if it wasn't of himself, it was of his God, that it would have been right behind his throne. He would have been sitting right underneath it. And the point is that he expects you on his whim to bow down to it. 
So it's still a huge depiction of his arrogance, his pride, and a complete misplace in who the real king is. So this is the the picture we get. And we know that for the Israelites, as they're hearing this, something's got to be ringing in their heads. God rescued them out of Egypt hundreds and hundreds of years before, and he gave them a way to live as his people. And one of the first things he tells them is not to worship or bow down to any other God but me, right? And they've been given these strict rules to not bow down to any carved image made from man's hands, whether it's wood or metal, whether it's any type of element, doesn't matter. Do not bow down to these things. And so you're seeing this the situation now. You, you've been taken into captivity. You now live in this land. You live under this rule. And you've been told also now by God's prophets that you are to seek the welfare of the city. You are to, to help it do well. You, you want to love your neighbor. You want to build parks and, and things that people can play in and flourish in. And you want to do your job well. But all of a sudden, the person in charge is building this giant statue that you're supposed to bow down and worship. And you know that your God has also warned you against that. And so what do you do? Do you revolt? Do you just quietly abstain? Do you give in? Because it's really not that big of a deal, right? Like I, I, I can bow a knee, but I know in my heart who I really serve and who I really trust. So this is the predicament they find themselves in. And the king is making a big ordeal out of this. Like I said, it's, it's 90 feet high. It's all made of gold. But not only that, you get this repetition now. It says he calls the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials and provinces. And then I had to repeat that line a couple times, right? Do you remember? And then I had to repeat the, all the instruments. It was the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. I'm like, look, could you just use like that last phrase for both of those? And every kind of music, just say that. That's all you got to say, right? But this was a, a literary technique of the old world. They would do this, one, to get your attention. If you're repeating something over and over, okay, this must be important. I've got to listen to this, right? But also, also to show the, the innateness of this, the intricacies of it. So for example, you would find similar language and writing and in God's instructions to the Israelites on how to build the temple, how to set up the tabernacle. It would be, you would go through and you would hear that repeated over and over and over again. So King Nebuchadnezzar is using that same type of pomp and circumstance here. This is a big deal. He wants everyone to know this is important to him. And he's, it's so important that he's willing to throw you into a fire and allow you to burn and melt to your death if you don't do it. And in contrast, we're going to see God's people in, in the midst of this ceremony, pomp and circumstance, we're going to see three young men, very quiet, very quietly doing what they are called to do by God. 
right? Like our, our tendency is when the world is getting loud and boisterous, we wanna, we wanna bolster back, right? We wanna fight. We wanna have our, our uh, boycotts and our protests. And we wanna get just as loud. And we see something different and unique here. So the problem is, they're, they're not doing it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing down. And the king now knows because there's some tattletales in the city. There's some rats out there. It's the same people, by the way, who Daniel had just saved by being able to interpret the king's dream. Remember that? No one could interpret the king's dream, and so he was going to get rid of all of those wise men, all those magicians, all the magistrates, and then Daniel goes, hold on, don't, don't harm them. God has revealed the dream to me. They weren't Israelites. They weren't part of God's people. And yet they were saved. And now, the next chapter, these guys have been promoted. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're getting seen by the king. They're in a place of prominence and power now. They're starting to feel like competition. And so what do they do? They go and rat them out. These guys aren't bowing down. And they come with this ridiculous claim. I mean, the first part is ridiculous. The second part is true. They say, uh, these guys, they aren't even acknowledging you. Verse 12. The end of verse 12. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. Well, actually, they've been paying a lot of attention. And they've been serving this king. Even though they were forced to and brought into captivity they haven't done a whole lot of pushing back to this point. They've been going along. They've been learning the things that the king wanted them to learn. They've been taking in the customs, and they've been doing the jobs appointed to them. But they're drawing the line in some places. So he goes, not only are they not paying attention to you, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. That part is true. Verse 13, we'll continue. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, listen to the boldness here. These three young boys in front of the most powerful person in all the world. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent 
and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. You can see a little bit of the love at first Nebuchadnezzar has for these three men. Because he made a decree, and it was immediately you will be thrown into the furnace. And he's told there's three men who aren't bowing down. And he goes, you know what, bring them before me. Like remember, these guys have displayed themselves to be loyal to the king and to be able to do things that no other people in his service could do. And so there's a sense that like, he probably doesn't want this to happen. Bring them to me. Hey guys, is this true? Listen, if it's true, you're gonna die. But if you just bow down. Like when you hear the music, just bow down. It's all well and good. Who's gonna save you from that? It's almost like a warning he's giving them. And it's not until they respond with a certainty that they have a better king than him. He gets furious and he loses his mind, right? He's like, you know what? Turn that thing up seven times hotter. Which in this time, by the way, the number seven was used literally just to mean like a lot. A whole lot. Make it super, super blazing hot. Because these guys, I don't want them just to die. I want them to die, die. Why? Because I said, who will be able to deliver you from my hand? And they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, listen, there's a God who can deliver us from you. He's more powerful than you. He's the real king. And even if he chooses not to for some reason, we're still not going to bow down to your gods. Like, dude loses his mind. How dare you? Talk about pride. Like, there is this egomaniac right here, right? So much pride, so much anger. If you ever wonder why you get so angry about something, I challenge you to ask yourself, is it possibly tied to some type of pride where you are struggling with the idea that God's more in control in that area than you are? Again, maybe we're more Nebuchadnezzar than these three young men, right? And so he's furious and he wants them dead. Now I love, I love the response we get from these three men. Now listen, you know who's not in this story right now? Where's Daniel, right? We don't know. Like, did Daniel bow down? I don't, we laugh because like, he's supposed to be the hero of the book of Daniel, right? No, he's not. Remember, he's just a normal guy. We're, we're, we're getting the highlights of how God's people are supposed to live faithfully. But every person has sinned and fallen short. Their whole nation is in captivity because as a whole nation, they were bowing down to other gods. Remember? That's the whole reason they're in Babylon in captivity. Did Daniel maybe go like, all right, I know this isn't like really a God that I need to fear, but I'm just gonna bow down. I'm doing some good work for the Lord in the king's palace here. I don't wanna mess that up. I don't know, maybe. That's speculation, right? Maybe... It hasn't even gotten to Daniel yet. 
That's another possibility. Maybe uh, these guys who are the tattletales said like, all right, Daniel's like really in good with the king. We're not going to even touch that one. But these three guys, if we can get him to throw them in the furnace, then we can start undermining this whole relationship. Like there's all kinds of possibilities. But the point is, the point is, we're being told a story of three young people when there is a whole nation of them faced with the same predicament. How many of them do you think bowed down? And here's the reality, is like every single day we're faced with similar predicaments. You know what he didn't ask them to do? He didn't tell them, you gotta stop serving your God. You can't worship the God of Israel. That's never mentioned in there. In fact, at the end of chapter two, he's praising the God of Israel for revealing that dream through Daniel. This is a a polytheistic society. Like they have no problem with you worshiping your God as long as you are also worshiping my God. Is that not similar to our society? You can worship your Jesus all you want as long as you also subscribe to these beliefs in our society. As long as you also have the same sex ethics we do and gender ethics we do, as long as you are voting the way we think you should vote, right? As long as you are saying things the way that should be said politically correct, as long as a whole lot of other hot buttons I could say, right? I could be pressing right now. Go ahead and talk about your Jesus, that's fine. But do you fall in line when this music plays? Are you bowing the knee like everyone else? That's the scenario we find ourselves in. And we're not being threatened by being thrown into a fire, which makes it possibly even more tricky because we don't see that there's a danger connected to it. Right? It's a lot easier to convince ourselves and it's really not that big a deal. And we're, we're promised all these things like, if you follow and obey the Lord, this is what our, our culture loves to promise a lot of times, that if you follow and obey the Lord, these blessings are gonna happen. Like I can't tell you how much I see on Instagram these people posting things about like, man, God is going to just give you your wildest dreams. You know? God wants to bless you lavishly. God wants to do this and that for you. And there's some truth to that, but... But is that the only reason you're following after him? Because these guys said, even if he doesn't save us and you throw us in that furnace and we die a horrific death, he's still our God and we only serve him. Is that the kind of faith we're called into? I believe so. And what we're gonna see next is this miraculous story of God stepping in and rescuing in a situation that seemed like there could have been no hope for rescue. And I know we read this as a story a lot of times and we don't connect it to our personal lives. It it feels like this distant fairy tale sometimes, right? I want us to see that God is still the same God who is present in the midst of our trouble. And so I wanna invite Tanya up here. She's gonna share a story that she shared with us the other night over dinner. It wasn't in a blazing furnace, but it's, it's a moment where it seemed like there could be no hope of rescue, and God was there, and he was present. So 
So um, we were doing the math, and it was about 15 years ago, probably around um, August, September. And uh, Adrian and I were in Yuma visiting family, uh, and I was going to get ready to start going to beauty school. So my mom um, said, why don't you stay for the weekend, and we'll have a yard sale to raise a little bit of money for your first payment, like for school. And Adrian left on a guy's trip, and we were going to meet back home in Casa Grande on Saturday night. So Saturday, we have this yard sale, and I'm not feeling very well, and um, thought just like heat exhaustion. I ended up leaving way later because I laid down and fell asleep. Um, so I left maybe around 9.30 to drive about two and a half hours, and... Um, all the way there, I'm driving by myself, and all the way there, I had worship music, like, blasting in the car. And I'm singing at the top of my lungs, and I was having just really intimate worship with the Lord. And I was praying, like, Lord, I want you to be so real to me all the time. I want to live for you. I don't ever want to shame you. And in the times that are hard, I want to... Just know that you're good and you're better, and I want to live that way for you all the time. So no matter what comes, like this is the prayer that's like pouring out of me. Um, just let me hold to you no matter what. Um, and as I'm getting into town, it was really late, like 12 or something. Um, and I look at our gas light, and it turned on, and the next morning we're going to go to church pretty early. And so I decided I'm just going to pull in about a mile from our apartment. There is a Safeway with a gas station without an attendant or anything in the middle of the night. But I thought I'm going to stop in there and put like $5 of gas in. And, you know, that way tomorrow we don't have to rush. And so I get down still praying, like still on a high from this worship with the Lord and thanking God for that time with him. And I put $5 in of gas because that's probably all that's in our bank account at that moment. And as I'm getting back in the car, three men come running out from behind where the um, attendant would be um, with a shotgun and weapons and bandanas over their face. And I'm like, I saw them as I'm getting in to close the door and I screamed. And all of a sudden, I was calm. And they told me, scoot over. I get in the passenger seat. And I said, just let me out of the car. You know, just let me out of the car. You guys can take the car. It's no, no problem. Just let me out of the car. And they said, no, get in the passenger seat. And he wouldn't let me even try to get out. And... Right then, I started to feel like I should be terrified right now, and I should probably be screaming. But I moved over, and I, they all got in, one behind me with the gun um, and the other driving, and went in the seat behind him. And all, of, all I could think to do was pray and say, like, Lord, I just told you. I just finished praying to you that no matter what comes, I would stand knowing that you're good. 
and I am not going to back down now. And so I was praying and even telling them, like, just pull over and let me out of the car. And they kept looking, the driver kept looking at me like something was weird. And as he would, um, as I was praying, he'd ask me, what are you saying? What do you keep saying? And I was just like, I'm just praying. And all throughout this time, they're driving out of town. And so I was thinking like, Lord, anything could happen right now. And no matter what happens, I want to honor you. But you also blinded armies in scripture to make, to make your way. And so all I know is I can trust you. And there's nobody else. There's nothing else I can do right now except trust you and know that you're powerful and pray in that way. And so I started praying that God would give one of them compassion and just a sense of, like, not wanting to do something terrible. So we get out about 30 minutes from town, and um, they take, like, this dirt road, and it's just kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, and we get out of the car, and they're kind of talking, and two of them are really aggressive talking, and they were trying to decide what they were going to do. And the guy sitting behind me had been silent pretty much the whole time. And he spoke up and he told them, that's enough. She's been through enough. And so he said, he, I don't know if he said, like, we can leave her here and we can go. And they were like, no, she's, you know, she's going to say something. Or, and he was like, it's okay, that's enough. And so they decided to tie me up. And they found things in the trunk to, like, tie me up with. And they had him a cord, and he's the one that comes and ties my hands. And even then, while I felt like, Lord, you, you could be answering my prayer in this right now, that he is having some compassion, my trust is not in his compassion. My trust is in you. And even if this is the end for me, because I don't know what they're going to do, then what you have is still better. And so they took me and they, like, laid me um, in one of the ditches that was there. And they did end up and drove away. And when he tied my hands, he tied them really loosely. Um, and so thankfully, as soon as they were gone, I was able to untie myself and walk. Um, and just by God's grace, there was, like, these massive lights I saw. And it was this... Um, feeding company at like three in the morning what because I walked like two miles or something I walked for a long time to get there and it's three in the morning so there's nobody there there's no house there's n nothing I was just like oh, I walked all this way because I saw lights and there's nothing here and then I hear the sound of this truck um, watering the stalls between the cattle and so I go over, and I'm like, he can't hear me because the truck is super loud. And as he turns to come down the next stall, I was standing there when he came up. And so probably scared him to death. Um, but he went and he grabbed his truck and brought his phone so that I could call somebody. Well, I had our cell phone, so Adrian didn't have our phone. Um, so there was like one phone number I remembered. And it was for a friend's mom. And so I called her and her husband went over to 
meet Adrian because I was worried that maybe they had gone back to our house if they had my information, my wallet. Um, and thankfully, like, as, like, police came to help and all of that, I just remember feeling like, then I started crying and, like, this relief. But even in that walk, I kept thinking, like, Lord, um, that song, the sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So I kept thinking, like, Lord, no matter what had happened, there would have been joy because you're that good and I can hold to you. And thankfully, I'm okay. And, like, the next day we found out we were expecting our oldest daughter. So it was just by God's grace. There's no other way that there could have been that I was not hurt or anything. Thank you for sharing that. It's a pretty crazy story, right? Like TV show, movie stuff. Um, and one, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, two, thank you so much for sharing that and pointing to who is the hero of the story. Because I think that's our tendency is we can hear that and go like, man, like if I'm ever in a situation like that, I hope I hold up like Tanya did, right? And yes, that's, that's true. Like, her, she, by God's grace, her, her faith allowed her to do that. But like, who was the one who rescued, right? When we hear stories like this, we go, man, I hope I could be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But as we're going to see in this final part, section that we read here, like, they couldn't rescue themselves. There had to be someone else that came in and did it. And we need to hear some stories like this that are like crazy to kind of wake us up from the mundane of life and go like, no, God rescues. God intervenes. God steps in. God is with us. But he's with you in, in the midst of whatever you're dealing with right now too. Even if it seems like it's not as crazy of a circumstance. Even if it feels like it's just the, the monotony of work and trying to pay your bills. Like God is present with you in that too. Nebuchadnezzar says, who can save you from my hand, and we're about to find out. Verse 24. They've been thrown in the fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Bunch of yes men there. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks was not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like he's forced to recognize game here, right? Blessed be their God who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
And then he goes back to his violent ways here. Shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The same dude who was so angry that you just, you just said that your God is more mighty than me and what I could do to you is now praising them for doing that very thing. Blessed be these men who defied the king's command and worshiped only their God, right? God miraculously saves them here. Now listen, remember, remember, they said even if God doesn't, we still will only serve and worship him. And I believe that that kind of faith is what God's looking for and is the very reason God did show up in that moment. Because there are real things that are going to hurt us in life, right? And each and every single one of us will eventually be put to death in one way or another in this world. We are going to suffer, we are going to die, but even though that happens, even if God doesn't miraculously save you from something that happens later today, he is still the God who steps down into the fire with us and rescues us. And I'm talking about an ultimate rescue. I'm talking about an ultimate salvation. I'm talking about the thing that none of us could rescue ourselves from. He comes and he steps into that. We just got done going through the book of Luke. In Luke 13, Jesus said to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have covered you like a mother hen covers her chicks with her wings, but you were unwilling N.T. Wright talks about that. He's like, what is he talking about? What does he mean? And he says, picture a barnyard fire. And you see a mother hen going and covering her chicks to rescue them from that fire. That hen would take on the fire. It It would be singed. It would be burned. But the chicks would be rescued. Jesus is the one who steps into the fire for us and with us. And he takes it on. He, he takes on that full penalty of death, of us bowing down to other kings and other idols, of us turning to these sins that we keep saying we don't want. Oh, God, you are better. And then we turn back to them. He takes the full penalty of all of that. He steps into the brokenness and the sin and the death. He steps into the fire and he protects us in it. He says, I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers chicks but you were unwilling. And that's the question. Are you willing to be covered by the saving grace of the one who steps into the fire and rescues you? That's the question. That's the question your very life depends on. And it's a question you gotta revisit daily. Every single day, am I trusting in that one who has come and stepped into the fire to rescue me. That's the hero of the story. That fourth man in the fire, the one who stands there and looks like a son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar says. The very son of God who is there and present with us in the very thing that we cannot rescue ourselves from. 